Greetings. Welcome to White Run Baptist Church Online. And welcome to the Upward Call, part number five, called United We Stand. Uh, we come together today uh, in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter one is what we'll be taking a look at today. And we come together to speak about the upward call of God. That's what the series is about from the book of Philippians. And it's based on what Paul says near the middle of the letter in which uh, what he strives for and what he works toward is this upward call of Christ Jesus. And what it is, is the, it is the call to be like him. It is the call to know him and know him more and to follow him, to follow him in his suffering and his resurrection. So it is to make him the center of our lives and to be called upward, that is heavenward, uh, in Jesus Christ. And so we're taking a look at it today. The way we've summarized the upward call is this. It's to be like Jesus Christ. And the series is focused on the mindset, the practices that produce progress in response to the call. And hopefully you'll feel encouraged to strain forward to what lies ahead and to help others do the same. And so I want to welcome you and I want to begin by taking a look at the scriptures that we're dealing with today. What we're going to learn today in chapter 1 verses 27 through 30 is we're going to learn that the upward call brings believers together to strive side by side for the cause of the gospel. And so this is going to be a great time. Let's take a look at the scriptures that we have today. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's begin with a moment of prayer. Father God, we rely upon you today to give us understanding of these things, to rightly reveal the principles in them, help us to apply them to our situation today. Lord, I pray for each and every listener that indeed they may be ones that are responding to this upward call in Christ, and I pray that you would encourage them to continue to strive forward in it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we look at our scriptures there, we see something very interesting. It's a very strong call to unity. And you'll notice uh, the great emphasis on this. Um, these are all plural verbs that we see here. And it kind of gives us a little clue that there might be a small problem in this church. Now, problem is stated very plainly in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 that we'll look at later, that there were a couple women that were divided for some reason. And the letter itself then has much language in it to imply that Paul was very concerned about their unity and that they maintained their unity. And so what we find in the passage we're looking at today is much of this idea of unity. So the first thing he calls uh, them to do in a, a, an important way 
and in an emphatic way, is to be worthy citizens. If you look at the first verse there, it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If we were to translate that literally, it's very difficult to trans translate literally as you'll hear, uh, we get a better sense maybe of what it is he's trying to say. He says, only worthily, that is in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ, act as a citizen. Act as a citizen. So what is translated here as your manner of life is to act as a citizen. From that word, we get our word politics. And so this is a command, act as a citizen. In other words, this is your manner of life. This is, uh, if we describe someone with the word citizen, we're drawing attention to their membership in a society. And we refer to one another as people, man, woman, things like that. If we refer to one another like that, we're simply pointing the person out. But if we're ever referred to someone as a citizen, then it's very clear that our context and our intent is to connect them to their political action, to their action in the community as it is conducting its life together. So the very word itself speaks of community and the very word itself is important to our understanding of what Paul is saying here. A membership uh, is what citizenship is, but it's marked by both privilege and responsibility. A citizen could vote in the Roman Empire in those days. A Roman citizen could vote, could run for office, could own property, could get legally married, could join the priesthood or the legion. They could leave an inheritance for their family. Now, all those sound like pretty common things, but please understand that non-Roman citizens could not do those things. Living side by side in the same community, citizens, non-citizens, citizens had all those privileges and with them their responsibilities, but the non-citizens did not. There was a marked difference in their empire between citizen and non-citizen. And Philippi in particular, the people that he's writing to, they were what was known as a Roman colony. They're like a mini Rome away from Rome. That wasn't some foreign city that Rome had conquered, but Rome came and essentially planted a city in conquered territory, and the city was planted by Roman citizens. And so they took a bunch of citizens, hey, you want to start a city over here? And we'll uh, bring a bunch of Roman citizens, we'll start a, a brand new work, a brand new city, and it'll be like Rome. And that's what Philippi was. And so these people he's writing to, they understood citizenship. They were privileged. They lived in a city that was uh, primarily, it was entirely run by Rome and by Roman citizens, but even primarily founded by citizens themselves. And so they understood citizenship. Paul understood citizenship. Paul was a Roman citizen. Even though he was a Jew, somehow he was also a Roman citizen. And if you go to Acts chapter 16, when Paul and the others were in Philippi, Paul, like usual, by preaching the gospel, was stirring up trouble. And the trouble got to the point that Paul and Silas were beaten and jailed overnight. And then when the day came, the magistrates sent to have them released. And this is really cool what Paul says here in Acts 16.37. He says, 
they have beaten us publicly. You know, in other words, the jailer comes and says, hey, the magistrate said you can be let go. And here's what Paul says while still standing in the prison. They've beaten us publicly. Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come and take themselves, come themselves and take us out. See, Paul was making a point here. And this is interesting. Look at verse uh, 39 here, or 38. It says, The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. See, the Roman citizens had a different standard of treatment, a different justice system. They didn't have equal justice under the law for everyone living in the empire. They had equal justice under the law for Roman citizens. And this is important because look how serious this was. Once they found out Paul and Silas were citizens, which evidently it never came up in all the confusion that happened the night before, they were afraid. They were afraid because they could face legal ramifications from a higher court. They could be in trouble for having mistreated a citizen of Rome, two of them actually. And so this is written to the Philippians who understand these things, who were eyewitnesses to Paul's situation and what happened there. And Paul using his citizenship to make a point and to keep himself probably out of further trouble. Paul uses his citizenship in the book of Acts a couple other times. One's to get out of a beating in Jerusalem. Another is to appeal to Caesar, which ultimately leads him to Rome from where he's writing this letter. And so this is a, an important distinction. But the command back there in Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy, let your citizenship be a worthy citizenship of the gospel of Christ, He's not talking about them as citizens of Rome. He's talking about them as citizens from above. Look what it says in Philippians 3.20. This is later in the letter Paul says this. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. If indeed we are in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. We're not of this world. We're still in the world, but we're no longer of the world. We are citizens of heaven, and we are citizens of heaven together. Because he says, let your collective, let all y'alls, as they say locally here, let all y'alls manner of life be worthy. And so we're sojourners here in this world, united by the shared citizenship of heaven, and we should act accordingly. This is Paul's imperative. This is his command. Behave like you belong to heaven. And the next several verses that we're going to look at describe how that behavior looks, how it is that we behave as worthy heavenly citizens. So let's take a look back at our key scriptures here. He says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And so the next thing we see is that a worthy citizen, that worthy, worthy citizens stand firm together. This is a sure sign of a lifestyle worthy of Jesus Christ, is that we are standing firm together. 
Now this word standing is derived from a very simple word for stand. Uh, and it uses a perfect form, which is a form of completion. And this makes this word more emphatic. It, you know, if they were to say, you know, where's Paul? He's standing over there. They would use the regular form of the word. But if they were to talk about making a stand for a principle of putting yourself at risk in order to make a point, something like that, they would use this emphatic form that is used here. That's why it's translated as standing firm. And this is how Paul always used this word. It's the idea of making a determined stand, holding to a particular position. And so we are to be found in Jesus Christ standing together. Now it's interesting because the, you know, the, the text doesn't actually literally say standing together. It just says, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Yes, but it is a plural verb. And that means all of you standing. And then there are two very important qualifiers. In one spirit and in one mind. In one spirit is a key theme in the New Testament that the people of Jesus Christ would be unified. The key, of course, is the spirit. That is the key to unity because it is the spirit of God. There's only one spirit and God is not divided. So it's very clear that even though we're individuals and the Bible makes a very good and, and emphatic point to the fact that we are different, that we have different backgrounds and different gifts that have been given to us by God and differences in us, we have but one singular spirit and that unites us. And there is but one singular gospel. And that is what unites us. And there's one body of truth that is accounted in the singular word of God, the Bible. So to be a one in spirit, the spirit must overshadow then the flesh, because the New Testament also reveals that although we are believers in Jesus Christ and we have the spirit of God, there is still an internal conflict between the spirit and the flesh. And we saw Jesus refer to this in the garden where he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. As he wanted the uh, disciples to pray with him while he was in the garden of Gethsemane before being arrested and then crucified. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's an internal conflict here. And so in order for us to be unified, the spirit must override the flesh and we cooperate in that endeavor. That is part of being a Christian, is this struggle against the flesh and against the influences and temptations of the world, this struggle to be more and more and more controlled by the Spirit of God. And so he says that we're to be together in one spirit, standing firm in one spirit. This is what he means. When we work together as a church, it's important for us all to be very careful to watch our manner of life. Our, our walk of life, as people call it. To be sure that we are washed in the Word of God. And we must be sure that we are not grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit of God so that as we work together, we're pulling in the same direction. When we really analyze what's going on in a church that is conflicted and divided and struggling, very often what we find is one party or all the parties involved are out of sync with the Spirit of God. 
Because if they were all in sync with the Spirit of God, there wouldn't be this division and conflict. And so the division and the conflict that we face inside our local churches, uh, first of all, I'll tell you, is fairly normal, okay? Because we're all still struggling inside. But it is always an indicator of some or all of us being out of sync with the Spirit of God. And so he tells us to stand firm in one spirit. How do we stay in the spirit? Well, indeed, that's a topic for another sermon. But I will say this, it begins with constantly being together in prayer, together in the Word of God, together in the service of the ministry. That is how we maintain our personal unity with the Spirit and our collective unity with one another. He says, not only with one spirit, but you'll notice he says also with one mind. The word mind here uh, that's translated as mind, most often where it appears in the New Testament is translated either as life or soul. And so it's based upon what Paul is saying in this context that the translators say, you know what, here we need to translate this as mind because in English this most parallels the English concept of mind, the way he's using the word here. It would refer then to the living self apart from the flesh of the body. It's distinct from the Spirit of God, which comes to us from God, from outside us the Spirit of God comes. It is speaking of that part of us which is personal to us, our soul, or our life. So to suggest that we are to be of one mind in addition to being of one spirit, is to suggest that we have in our fellowship a singleness of life, a singleness of identity, and of purpose, and even of will. So it may seem redundant with the use of, you know, saying in one spirit, in one mind, but I think Paul wanted to make the point and Emphatically, and to suggest that we ought to have a unity that is truly internal, not just sharing the Holy Spirit, but having our very essence of life, our very internal selves in common together. Saying these together is to be saying that we should be standing as a single entity, a single spiritual living being. So heavenly citizenship, as you can see, is about togetherness. Heavenly citizenship is about a unity of nationality, a unity of values, a unity of purpose. As this message comes to you, we're, we're in the United States, we're facing a time of great division in our country. And the reason is we are citizens technically of the country together, but we are not unified in our values. We are not unified in our purposes, and therefore we cannot be unified. And it's, it's ironic how one side constantly calls to the other side, we should be unified, we should be unified, but we cannot be unified without a unified morality, without unified values and purposes in mind. By the way, this is what the founding documents were designed to do, is to give us that basis. Like the Word of God gives church the basis for how they're to be acting and believing and thinking and therefore how they're to be unified. The founding documents were to do that for the nation, the laws of the nation. But as one 
or the other party abandons that foundation, then there can't be unity. Unity is lost. And so this is the struggle of worldly beings. They don't have one spirit. They don't have this, this word of God which is unchanging and inerrant. The laws of no country are inerrant. The laws of no country are unchanging. These things change. The Word of God doesn't. And so this is why the church can endure and we can have in common uh, with a martyr from the first century the exact same doctrine 2,000 years later. And it's because of this unifying Word of God, the unifying Spirit of God. And so this heavenly citizenship is indeed about togetherness, working together toward the same goal. And that's what we see in the next part here, striving side by side. He says, uh, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so he uses very interesting words here. A single word is translated striving side by side. And it's a word that means to engage in a public contest or a sport. It is the word from which we get our word athletics. But here it is prefixed with a preposition. They just took a preposition, just stuck it on the beginning of this word where we get the idea of athletics. And it is the word soon, which means with. And so in other words, we're, we're competing together, not against one another, but we're competing together. This word is used only two times in the Bible, and they're both right here in the letter to the Philippians. It says, striving side by side, right here in verse 27 of chapter 1. Then you go to chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3, so he's getting near the end of the letter, and he gets to this issue that the church was having. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Sinchi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. There's the word. Here it's translated labored side by side. They strove side by side, just as he's telling us to in chapter 1, with me in the gospel together. So he also adds the word together uh, to make it emphatic. They had done this together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So they had not only worked together, they had worked with Paul and Clement and the others. And so there was a unity and they're to tell these two to agree in the Lord. So they're obviously having some kind of a disagreement and obviously there needs to be reconciliation. And part of that reconciliation, Paul says, re remind them that we strove together that we were found to be striving together at some point. So this is a powerful word and it's used in a powerful way. And this is a uh, very important. Look, this is something, this word brings up something that we can all relate to. This is the built-in illustration for this message is right here in this word. I want you to picture a sporting contest. Now to me, the most obvious one to go with this particular word that is the easiest to see and understand is a tug of war where you've got a team of people all holding the same rope, pulling in the same direction. 
And this is the most obvious illustration to me. It's a simple objective. There's obvious teamwork going on. But something more complex might suit you. Maybe you're a big fan of basketball or football and you like the idea of a team sport that has so many different positions and each position with the same strength and, and seemingly different goals, but really they all have the same goal to score points. Picture, if you will, then your team working together. And you might even choose to think of soccer. And I'm not going to use it because I don't understand it all that well. I know they have forwards, they have people that are primarily offense and primarily defense, and they've always got one fellow that's rolling around on the ground pretending to be hurt. And I'm not sure how it fits into the whole scheme of it. But nevertheless, pick whatever team sport that you're most interested in and think about this word, striving side by side. They are all working for the common goal. And now mentally go through the team that you have chosen, the sport you have chosen, position by position, and consider how each and every one of these people have an important part on each and every play at all times. Because in a game of football, for example, if you're on the offense, even if you're not going to get the ball on that play, you have to block or you have to convince the defense that you're the guy that's going to get the ball when in fact you're not. There's always something for you to do. The same is true in the sport of basketball. Even if the designed play is not near you, you've got screening to do. You've got faking to do. You've got to be in the thing. You've got to lead defenders away from the play one way or another. And so there's always active. The good teams have good players that are busy all the time. Everyone doing their part. Now I want you to take your illustration and I want you to apply that illustration to church life. Because this is what Paul is suggesting. He is suggesting that we are in a team sport and every single person in the congregation is part of that team and part of the activity of play. He addressed the letters to the saints. And we spent a sermon talking about what it means to be saints and who's referred to. And we saw very clearly everyone's referred to with that word. Every believer in the local congregation is called a saint. They are all written this letter by Paul. So this applies to each and every one of us that we must be standing firm in one mind, in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So to strive together for the faith of the gospel, what does that mean for the faith of the gospel? It's kind of a strange phrase, uh, but I think I understand what he is saying here. And even if I don't, from the larger context, we can gather what he means. Uh, some suggest that to, you know, the faith of the gospel is suggesting our faith, which is the gospel. And that would suggest then that you know, that this is just contending for the gospel. But some would suggest that it is to strive for the faith of the gospel, that is the, the purity or the faithfulness of our gospel message. I'm not sure if that's what it means, because if our gospel is not pure, if it is not a faithful gospel, it's really no gospel at all. But what it clearly means is that this is about our mission. 
This is about the gospel. It is about, therefore, spreading the gospel, not just to new converts, but helping one another constantly grow in it. The upward call has this initial call to salvation given by evangelism, by the word of God, but it is a continuous lifetime call upward toward Christ, not just initially, but always. And so this is our mission to spread the gospel to those who haven't heard it yet so that they may be converted and to those who have heard it so that they may be improved in Christ. So of course this includes spreading the good news, but it also includes defending the good news. And in the context, this really seems to be the emphasis because Paul says that he's in prison for the defense of the gospel. And here in verse 30, he says, you're engaged in the same conflict that I saw, that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He is in a situation of defending the gospel before the court. They were in the position of defending the gospel before the world in Philippi. So that means that each and every one of us has to not only be able to tell the story of the gospel, we have to be able to answer attacks against it. We have to be able to explain the gospel and to answer questions about it. We must be able to defend it against distortions or falsehood that are raised by, by false converts, by false believers, false teachers. And by discernment, we have to try to keep one another in line with it, making sure that it stays pure. Folks, the gospel is always under attack, and we must be diligent and striving to keep it pure. But we must be doing this together as a body. Look what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. Ecclesiastes has a lot of good wisdom in it. And here's what it says here. It says, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so in good poetic form, it moves, it moves, it moves from two to three. It says, well, look, two people walking together, they're going to defend against a lone robber. In fact, the robber probably won't even attack at that point. But, you know, then it moves it to three. A, a strand, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's there's a principle in scripture that follows this great truth that when we are together indeed it's uh it's much more powerful and much more safe for us to be together iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another according to the bible and um it reminds me of of a great truth and as you know i'm i'm a baptist and you know we are whites run baptist church and I once heard someone ask, do you know why you must always take more than one Baptist fishing with you? And I tried to think about it a moment and I couldn't come up with an answer. And, and the punchline was, because if you take only one Baptist, he will drink all your beer. And I found that incredibly amusing. And you might find it amusing too, but there's some truth to that. And that's probably what makes it really amusing is that we are stronger together. We are more faithful together. And if there are two there to keep an eye on each other, well, then they're at least going to practice temperance, if not total abstinence from the substance. And so we see here from, from the humor and from the clear illustration of Ecclesiastes that together we are better 
together is beneficial for the people of God. That is why we've been called together into a church. The very word church implies a collective because it means the called out ones that are brought together for the ruling. In those days of a city, in the context of the church, the ruling of the kingdom here on earth. So this is a very clear implication that all of us need to know the gospel. We need to have the plays memorized and objectives and the rules of the game so committed to memory as to play together seamlessly. I remember when I was young playing Little League football and I was a terrible football player. I really was. And, you know, when you're that age and you're you're kind of big for your age and, and you're a chunky little kid, but you're not real athletic, they're like, put him on the line. You know, he's at least, you know, they'll have trouble pushing him over because he's kind of big. And so they, they put me on the line and, you know, and I get knocked down and I'd be put on the offensive line and the, and the defense would just run over me and get to our quarterback. And uh, so I, I thought, okay, that's not working very well. So the next time, you know, I got in after being knocked down a few times, I got in there and the guy knocked me down. And I decided, okay, when he knocks me down, I'm going to turn around and grab him by the legs so he can't get my quarterback. And so I did that. And guess what? That's a penalty. Well, I'm like, you know, I'm like eight years old. I didn't know that was a penalty. And all of a sudden a flag comes, like hits me. And, uh, you know, I get penalized and, and we get the 10 yard holding penalty because I tackled the guy because that's against the rules. I didn't know it was against the rules. But nevertheless, we have to know the rules. If we're going to be a part of this team church, if we're going to be a part of what is going on in the world for the furtherance of the gospel, we have to know the gospel. We have to know how to defend the gospel. We have to know how to encourage one another in the gospel. And so in church, we can be hurt by these wrong attitudes and wrong understandings about church life, just like you can be hurt in a game by not following the rules. This letter was addressed to the saints, to everyone, including the leadership, but especially not just the leadership. And it's a harmful attitude in our churches. It says, you know, it's up to the deacons and the pastor. They got to know the gospel. They got to know how to deal with this. We'll call them if we have a problem. It's up to the ministers to minister. But no, it's for everyone. It's for everyone to know the plays, the game plan, the gospel. And each of us indeed plays a part. There's one more phrase I want to point out here, and it's in verse 30. And it says, engaged in the same conflict. Engaged in the same conflict. To further prove the point that we're all involved, Paul says that we are all engaged in the same conflict. Now that's important because Paul, he was an apostle. <laughs> and Paul was not just an apostle, he was like the troublemaker apostle. He always got thrown in prison. He'd show up to a town, he'd teach in a synagogue for a while, they'd get tired of him, throw him out. He'd start teaching somewhere else and they'd get tired of him, there'd be a riot in the city. And eventually it ends with Paul being uh, often beaten, uh, always banished from the city. And, uh, you know, sometimes he'd sneak back in later. But nevertheless, this was his pattern. And so we think, well, that's just for Paul. No, actually, it's for all of us. Because look, he says, you know, you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There's no neutrality in this. The whole church must be in on the struggle, on the striving. In these past decades in the United States, some people are asking the question about the church, how could we have let this go? 
How could the church have lost so much ground? Because they look at the past and they perceive that the church has lost ground. Now, I'm one who contends that I'm not so sure the church had that much ground. I think there was a lot of false conversion within the church. But either way, whether you believe that indeed there's less Christians than there, than there was some years ago, or the church has less influence, or that the membership has dropped, or it's not dropped and it's just revealing that most were false converts, no matter what, how you diagnose the problem, we have to understand it's really one and the same. And it's this, you know, when it's easy to be a Christian, the fight is not obvious. So many don't believe and didn't believe for many years that we're in any kind of fight or struggle at all. So why bother to train? If there's not a game Saturday, why should I practice this week? And for that reason, we didn't train, we weren't prepared, we were like a team that always plays opponents that are well below their level, or always plays opponents that call up and forfeit the game ahead of time. When it's easy, we tend to believe that our role is not important. That theology, that doctrine, that apologetics, that all that arguing and stuff, let's just let the preacher do that. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to share you something from a, from a perspective of a pastor right now that I think many pastors will agree with and amen with me on this. As a preacher, I am tempted to think on any given topic. I don't really need to know that because brother so-and-so wrote the definitive work on it. I can't do better than that, so I don't really need to do it myself. And the problem is, you know, I, I might see, you know, oh, there's this challenge from evolutionary thought is challenging the gospel all around. And it is a great challenge to the gospel. But I may think to myself, I don't really need to know how to defeat evolutionary thought. We have the Creation Museum for that. And there's other ministries that got all that handled. Every angle, radiometric dating, carbon dating, you know, fossils, they, they've got it all covered. They've got an article about everything. I don't need to know it. And that's easy for me to think. It's easy for me to think that about the cults or opposing other religions or opposing atheists because for every single one of these topics, there have been great people much more intelligent than me who have written books on the subject that I believe to be the definitive work. And so my problem is, I think in my mind, that foe is defeated. I don't need to really address it. Atheism's dead because every argument they've ever had has been defeated by Christians. However, there are still atheists. There are still people who think evolutionary thought. There are still members of cults and members of other religions, things like that. They're all lost. And many of them are right here in my neighborhood. They're not going to read those books. They're not going to pick those things up. They need me to come with them to them with the gospel of truth and be able to answer their questions. It has to be local. It has to be connected. Every single one of us has to be strong in the game plan and in the rule book. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. You all have to strive side by side in one spirit, in one mind, contending for the faith of the gospel, just like me. This is important because if we go back to our tug of war example, one by one, if we think it's not necessary for me to be in this fight, 
These people are better at it than me. One by one, someone lets go of the rope. And we have lost so much ground in the United States, in the Western world. As the world has pulled the church off its foundation, folks, we need every single hand on the rope. Let's grab hold of the rope. Let's take our place in that line exercise and train and strengthen our faith, grow in our knowledge of the gospel, exercise our knowledge of the gospel in evangelism to those around us so that our team has no weak links. Let us train together so that we can sharpen one another, that we can hold each other accountable to learn. Folks, the upward call is for everyone. The upward calls for all of us together. Let us strive together for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you, Lord, that you are so good to show us these great truths. And Lord, what you have shown us is a letter to a church that thrived, that spread, that taught, that planted. They did all the things that a functional church does. And Lord, we are praying that for us now. We're praying that you would give us the resolve to strive side by side, that you'll grant us unity by your great spirit, that you'll help us to be of one mind, that Lord, you make yourself known and glorified through us, your church. Let us serve you faithfully. Let us be faithful to the gospel. Let us know you more this day. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for listening today. My invitation to you is to ask your questions to us online. I'm going to show you here our address here. Um, this is a White's Run Baptist Church. You can find us at whitesrun.org. And you can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. We answer those emails personally. Uh, they will get personal attention. You won't be put on some mailing list. You can ask whatever you want. Um, and even if you just want to uh, complain, that's fine too. Send us your complaints. We'll read them. We'll pray over them and consider them. But I pray that you have a blessed time in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you grab hold of that rope and that you join in striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel so that indeed God may be known and glorified where you are. God bless you.